It is great to have you with us today, <clears throat> and many of you noted how much you enjoyed our family pastor, Ryan Ventura, last week. Didn't he do great? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he's looking for a new job because apparently he referred to his boss as Mr. Rogers, but if you got a job available, you can give him a call. So uh, what's going on with Ryan? You know, today we're uh, moving into another section of Song of Solomon, and it's specifically going to talk about conflict. In fact, 25% of this book, both times in a dream sequence, describe conflict in relationship. And I think if there's one thing that causes conflict, it's differences. I think for many of us, we think of ourselves as normal, and our spouse, our kids, our colleagues at work, the other people are the ones that are just complicated. They are wrong. I am normal. They are wrong, right? So here's a, here's a little picture I found years ago of a guy describing the difference between he and his wife. He says, this is me, this is my spouse. <laughs> very, very complicated. What I tried last time didn't work, and I said this, so I was supposed to listen, but I listened this way, but I tried it, it didn't work. Oh, my goodness. And he asked his wife. His wife's like, I'm not complicated. I'm sophisticated. <laughs> and your problem is you only have one switch and only does one thing. That's the real problem. But whatever the differences are, whether it's the living room, whether it's the playroom, or whether it's the bedroom, differences can cause conflict. And we need to learn how to adapt one another through the grace of God in whatever relationship we're in. So with that, in this series, we've talked about three ways in which in marriage we're trying to connect. At a spiritual level, core values, praying together, understanding uh, what God's doing in me so I can be a blessing to my spouse. Our friendship level, how do we connect as friends what we want, what we're thinking about, what we're feeling. And then also at the, at the body closeness. And how do all three of these things become important? Which is why in the series we spent two-thirds of the time on the friendship aspect and the, the spiritual aspect. And then the expression of that doesn't always lead to that, but all three things are important. This book just talks a lot about the third one as well. I've also mentioned that in this book I take the view that they've been married the entire book. There's lots and lots of outlines for the book. And that this book follows a seven-day Jewish wedding feast. And the earlier chapters rhyme with the ideas of the later chapters. But the whole thing points to the center, which is we need God in the center of our marriage to make life work, marriage work, and even relationships work. So today we'll talk specifically about marriage, but there's lots of application for any relationship you have when it comes to conflict. How do we keep God in the center? In doing so, we're going to move from this dream sequence from a few weeks ago to a new dream sequence. In this case, she's dreaming about their marriage years later. They won't refer to each other as bride. So apparently in this dream, they've been married for a while. And now they're starting to not necessarily be in sync. And they're going to have some differences when it comes to intimacy in particular. They're going to have to overcome. And we're going to find that if you close your eyes to conflict in any area of your life, in any relationship in your life, it can turn the dream of a great partnership, the dream of a great working environment, the dream of a great relationship with your son and daughter. If you close your eyes to conflict and hope it's just going to magically go away, it can turn that dream into a nightmare. However, God can bring grace to bring healing to a hurting marriage or hurting relationship because you can turn nightmares into dreams by waking up to conflict. Remember that Diet Pepsi commercial? Wake up, people! Wake up, people! This chapter is going to have four wake-ups. Wake up to your role. Wake up to what God wants to do. Wake up to what your spouse needs. Wake up to the other person. Wake up 
so you can be a conduit of God's grace to the people around you. Now, before I jump in today, one more thing in the introduction. Uh, my son-in-law, so Sierra and Brandon have been married for about five years, and Brandon lived with us for about six months um, in the transition from Missouri to here before they got married. In doing so, I said, hey, Brandon, uh, you're about to get married to my daughter. This might seem kind of strange because I'm going to be your father-in-law, but I'm also a pastor. I said, we've talked pretty extensively with Sierra over the years about intimacy and marriage, and, and I don't know if that's experience you had with your parents. No. I said, well, most people haven't. I said, and this might be too weird, but if it would be helpful, we'd be delighted to sit down and have a similar conversation with the two of you. <laughs> he said yes! So we actually had about a two-hour conversation before they got married, but we just got a chance to talk about the stuff that nobody talks about, the highs, the lows, the challenge, the adaptation. And I began talking that day. What I'll say to you is I said, you know, Beth and my relationship, our, our intimate life has been one of the greatest joys, greatest sources of pleasure in our life, something we, we cherish, and it is without a doubt been the area that we have bruised each other, hurt each other, had to learn how to adapt to each other throughout our marriage. So learning how to negotiate, learning how to communicate, learning how to adapt is just really, really critical. And if you don't know that going in, statistics say that 15% of couples are, are matched up. The rest of us, 85%, are going to have to learn how to adapt to one another. So with that, let's look at four aspects of waking up this morning in this dream sequence. The first area we need to wake up is to wake up to unresolved conflict in our relationship and unresponsive excuses, where we're just making excuses for not responding to our spouse's She's been saying for years, she really wants us to be a better comforter. He's been saying for years, he really wants more affection. She's been saying, I want you to care about my life in the living room, not just the bedroom. Give me some attention. And we've been making excuses. Here's how the passage begins. She's talking. I sleep, but my heart is awake. She's describing what's happening in the dream. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks. He says, open for me, my sister, my love. My dove, my perfect one. So he's, he's pouring it on here. Now notice he doesn't say bride, which is why this seems to be a picture of them later in their marriage in this dream sequence. But he's pouring it on. She's my sister. There's a family connection here. She's my love. She's my dove, my one and only, my perfect one. And by the way, I have been working all night. My head is covered with dew and the locks with drops of the night. I've been working all night, working long into the, in, into the hours, and, and I've got the dough, dew from the morning, and I have just been thinking the whole time as I've worked that I could be with you. So he's knocking on the door, and the commentators don't have a really good explanation as to why she's in a different room. Maybe the king's room and she had a private room or, or maybe because he's working late that night, he stayed out with the sheep and, and she wasn't expecting him so she's already in bed and had locked the door. It's not really a great explanation. But whatever the reason, he's knocking on the door and clearly he's looking for initiation to be physically intimate because he's been thinking about it all day. Now we don't know exactly why but she's not going to be interested. Maybe it feels like, oh my goodness, you're waking me up. I can't believe that you came home late. I can't believe you're disrespecting me by wanting me to do this, you know, in the middle of the night when I'm trying to sleep. Whatever the reason, his need for affection, her need for respect to her, to her boundaries, or her need for a respect that, hey, aren't I more than just a person to visit when you come home from work? Maybe she feels like he's saying, you think because you work hard all day I owe you something? Is that what she's saying? Is that what you're saying? Well, he's not saying any of that, but you can imagine the conflict here. 
So her response to this wooing is, well, I've already taken off my robe. How could I possibly put that on again? To which you think he's saying, leave it off. Right? You think that's the answer. But you kind of get this idea that, you know, there's something else going on here. Maybe she's feeling disrespected. Maybe she feels unappreciated. Maybe she's just tired. But the bottom line is that the couple that's been longing to just jump in bed at any moment is suddenly not in sync with each other. And, and, and she goes on and says, oh, and by the way, if the robe wasn't a big enough problem, if I got out of this bed, the floors are kind of dirty, I already washed my feet, how could I possibly defile them again? So, He's not forcing himself, but he is trying to persuade her. So she's maybe feeling hounded or feeling pressured. He's feeling unresponded to. And no, I don't say because I work, you owe me, but, but I was thinking of you. I was hoping you were thinking of me. Right? All of this stuff, it's like a snapshot of like a thousand different marriage conversations I've had over the years. And in that, both couples are going to need to be awakened to their excuses, not respecting her boundaries, not respecting his need for affection, they're going to have to wake up to these excuses that aren't particularly great to the outside observer. I was to a buddy of mine. He's uh, not a follower of Jesus, but we've gotten to be friends over the last couple of years. And I found out he's about 62, and uh, we, we bike together occasionally. And I said, hey, have you, have you been married before? Um, he says, yeah, I actually have. So his marriage came up because I got divorced many years ago. I said, oh, is that something you're thinking about maybe getting remarried one day? He's like, no. <laughs> I said, why do you say it that way? He said, because I'm no good at conflict. I said, weren't you like a principal of a school where you help people with, with, with all kinds of issues? He's like, oh, I was really good there. I could help people with, with human resource issues and management issues and, and parents and kids and teachers. But I could never get feedback from my spouse without getting defensive and angry. And I just know until I get my, a grip on that, I'm just going to blow up another marriage. I didn't know how to handle conflict. And I would just make excuses to stonewall I wasn't going to do it. But really, I just I don't know how to handle conflict in that kind of intimate relationship. So like I said, this applies to more than just marriage. There's going to be some knocking at the door between you and your kids, you and your spouse, you, you and your colleagues, where there's going to be some conflict that you're going to need to figure out how to meet the needs of both people in the situation. Speaking of knocking at the door, when our kids were young, we said, hey, guys, uh, mom and dad's room is a special room for the two of us, so make sure you knock on our door before you come in. Kids are really young. Why? Well, because we might be changing. Okay. Kids got older. Make sure you knock on the door. Why? Because you might not be able to unsee what you see. And I don't want to pay for your counseling years later. That's why. But it's not as easy to explain that to a, a son with autism. So all of our, all the doors in our house have locks, but the locks are on the outside because we keep the doors locked so Quinn can't get in to drink bleach or get into soap and things like that. So the keys are hung up high. So one night, my wife and I are busy eating graters and you know, playing with dolphins, according to Ryan. And, and in the middle of our busyness, all of a sudden, we start realizing there's someone in the room with us yelling, shoes, shoes, shoes. Now, thank goodness God gave the grace to my son that he's partially blind, so, and he was totally unaware what was going on, but it definitely was a mood killer that he just wanted his shoes on because Quinn likes to wear shoes to bed and they'd come off. But when it comes to marriage, it's just funny moments, there's awkward moments, there's, there's things you laugh about, there's things like, oh, how did that happen? It just kind of happens. And sometimes it's very painful like we see in this story. So how are they going to work through it? Well, the second thing we need to wake up to 
We need to wake up to seeing our spouse's needs in the situation, not just our own. Remember a few weeks ago I talked about conflict? And I said what happens in our hearts is that often in our spouse they get disappointed. They were hoping we'd respect them as a connection to respect. They were hoping for affection, right? They wanted the affection, they wanted to connect. But, but then there was a loss when you said no, so now there's anger. And now there's fear. Man, is she ever going to understand how important this is? Is he ever going to understand how exhausted I am? And you start seeing the conflict of bad behavior coming out of your spouse, but you don't see the needs underneath it. And for him to say, hey, I need to recognize my wife's need for appreciation and attention and respect here. And for her to recognize, he's not trying to get something out of her, not trying to pressure her or hound her. He just wants to be with her. His need for affection or appreciation for how hard he's been working. We've got to wake up to see not only our needs, but the needs of others. All right, the story continues. Now we need to wake up to my defensiveness. It's easy to see our spouse's defensiveness. It's easy to see where they're being overly sensitive. But it takes the Holy Spirit's work in us to see where we're being defensive or we're being overly sensitive. And we'll see that in both of them here today. So she's talking again. She said no, but he's been standing there kind of hoping still, waiting still, but he's letting her make the decision. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. And now she's had a chance to kind of think about it. You know, I did wake up. I was a little irritated, but you know what? Okay, I've got a little time. Maybe what I thought he said wasn't really what he said. You know what? My heart began to yearn for him. She starts to kind of get some interest. So she arose. She goes to the, open the door for her beloved, and her hands are suddenly dripping with myrrh, and her fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. So... What some commentators believe is that this whole thing's kind of a metaphor for their relationship. So the house and the room is just a giant metaphor. But if it was a literal door, the door kind of represents the handle on one side. In those ancient days at 1000 BC, he could put perfume on this side of the latch and it would roll through the door and it would now be on the handle she's touching on the inside. The idea being he was hoping, he was interested, but she has said no because of her robe and her, her feet being dirty. So he instead took perfume and, and put perfume or this myrrh on the door to say, hey, it's okay. Timing's not right. Not a big deal. We'll catch, catch each other another time. This kind of this graciousness and this patience and this kindness. Now we're going to find out it doesn't last very long. <laughs> but he does at least initially try this myrrh. Now, she, on the other hand, there's kind of another little thing in the Hebrew here. If you look at Hebrews 57, 8, kind of how the word hand is used and latch, most commentators have noted that this is really like the word hand is almost like the, the word for key. So key and lock, it's the idea he wants to initiate. He's the key and she's the lock, and they're trying to unlock this physical dimension of their relationship. So she's kind of warmed up to this idea. She steps in and she says, I opened the door for my beloved. He, he was gracious when I wasn't really interested, but then I kind of warmed up to it. My beloved had, oh, he turned away. He stormed off. He was gone. He got defensive. He got angry. He gave a little bit of grace, but then when the grace didn't work, he stormed off. Well, my heart leaped when he spoke. No, 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 I, I, I see, I see. It was an excuse. I sought him, but I couldn't find him. I called him, but now he's not even talking to me. He's just ticked off, mad, upset. He gave me no answer. Well, I think when it comes to marriage, one of the biggest challenges is that we marry somebody that's different from us. And often, a crockpot falls in love with a light. And the crockpot takes a while to warm up, doesn't fire up to 350 degrees, 
And so the light shows up, and the light's like, let's go. And it takes a little time to warm up, even to the idea of it. I'm just worn out and tired. I was ready for bed. And the problem is, if you're a light, right? Let's turn the light on here. If you're a light, the light switch, if you're a crockpot, is always on. It's always on. The crockpot's like, why is the light, why is my husband always on? Why is my spouse always on? And it's always husband and wife. I've, I've had women who feel like their husband's a crockpot, and they're the light switch. They're ready to go. And if you're the crockpot, you're like, oh, it's so annoying. It's always on. And then finally, you kind of come together, and the timing is right. And you're like, finally, all right, let's turn this thing off. Whew. I get an hour. I get a day. Maybe I'll even get a week oh, before. The light's on again. Oh, my goodness. The light. You go back over here. Why is that light always on? Is it always turn off again? Let's turn this thing off. Okay. And now your whole relationship is like, every time I hold hands doesn't mean I'm interested. I want a back rub, a real back rub, not that back rub. I think we're clear. All right. And you're like, ah, it's on again. Get back over here. Turn this thing off. Screw this thing in. All right. And if you're the crockpot, you're getting more and more frustrated. Be like, okay, now I think I've made it clear. What are you going to do, right? If you're the crockpot, it's so frustrating. Like, what are you going to do? There's only one thing you can do. All right, it's a clapper. That's the only thing you can do, right? Now, if you're the light switch, you're not intending to hound or to be annoying or disrespect. You're just interested. And you want them to want you the way you want them. It's really that simple. But that difference is causing conflict. I shared this years ago, and uh, an older gentleman down in Atlanta who listened to my message when I used to pastor down there, he came up to me and said, Chad, what you said about the crock pot and the light is so true. Unfortunately... My wife's heating unit burned out a decade ago. <laughs> but again, as I said before, this doesn't always go male and female. I've talked to plenty of people who reverse the other way. My point is we've got to learn how to hear from the Holy Spirit in these situations because there will be something that causes differences. Innate differences, personality differences, energy differences. It might be circumstantial. Boy, I'm pregnant. I'm going through menopause. I'm experiencing ED. Whatever it is, there are so many different things that are going to bring up an awkwardness that we've got to learn how to communicate, how to negotiate, and how to interact for the sake of each other. So he's now stormed off and has gotten defensive. She kind of had this moment of, you know what, I, I think I need to, 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 to kind of warm up to what my spouse needs. And then these watchmen show up. As I mentioned several weeks ago, when the other dream sequence is that watchmen play the role of, I think, the Holy Spirit. She's looking for her husband during her insecurity last time, and the watchman pointed the way. This time, the watchmen are a little rougher on her. The watchman, which is kind of the, the role of God or the Holy Spirit, who went around the city found me, and they struck me, and they wounded me. And I take this to be the Holy Spirit convicting us. Man, you know what? I overreacted. I said something I shouldn't have said. But I was thinking about myself, not the others. The keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. So she says, you know, I just realized I had this time with God, and I realized I really needed to reprioritize being a conduit of God's love to my spouse. And he seemingly is going to do the same thing, going to realize that, yeah, he gave a little bit of grace, but just enough to get what he wanted than he did, and he stormed off and was defensive as well. 
So she charges the daughters of Jerusalem, which is kind of the voice of truth, the voice of the chorus. If you find my beloved, tell him I'm lovesick. I'm re-engaged in my marriage. I'm re-engaged what I need to do. So I've talked to several couples over the years, and can't really tell you know, any of the specific stories, but here's a common theme when couples come to chat with me. Usually I'll chat with them once before I, I refer them to a counselor. Is when they come to me, they're feeling hopeless. Scale of 1 to 100, their marriage feels like a 27. They're missing each other. They haven't found each other. They're irritated at each other. Just things aren't going well. And I'm trying to help them find each other, but also find hope that God can do amazing things. So I've shared this example with dozens of couples over the years. I'll say, guys, right now your marriage is at a 27 out of 100. That's kind of painful. What if I told you that in six to eight weeks, if you would listen to God, you could move from a 27 to a 64? Still failing. That's a lot more joy, a lot more peace, and a lot more connection. So I just don't see how that's possible. And I've shared, well, three times three times three is 27. But four times four times four is 64. Now, I've had couples in four to six short weeks have said, Holy Spirit, God, I want you to take one area of my life, and I'm not going to get from being a three out of ten listener to a ten out of ten listener, but God, would you help me be a little bit better listener, just from a three to a four? Would you help me to hear what my spouse is saying, not necessarily what I'm interpreting? Then you have one more area. Instead of focusing on my need for affection, I'm going to focus on her need for attention. Instead of focusing on my need for respect, his need for affection. And I'm not going to go from a 3 to a 10, but God, if you could just tweak me a little bit, just convict me a little bit, just grow me a little bit. And God, if you could help me love the way you love, be long-suffering and patient, and though I'm angry because what he did and how he handled it was wrong, I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm not perfect at forgiving, but I'm a little bit better. The cumulative impact of God working in your life, in your relationship, and this is true in your marriage, it's true to you and your son and daughter, it's the truth of your parents. You're like, oh, it's so messed up. It's so screwed up. What if you just were a little bit more gracious, a little bit more patient, a little bit more seeing their side of the equation? I'm telling you, any relationship can get better if you let God just tweak three small areas of your life. And that's what I want for you. And I think that's what God wants for us. Wake up to my defensiveness, not theirs, and wake up to my oversensitivity to what happened. Number three, wake up to if you and how you meditate on your spouse. So do you meditate on your spouse? And if you do, is it just all the things that drive you crazy? All the things that they think wrong and do things wrong and turn the toilet paper the wrong way and put the dishes in the wrong way, right? All those things that we all know about each other. But are you meditating on that? It's no wonder that there's not a warmth in your relationship. So despite the conflict and, despite, and since this conviction of the watchman, she's going to start remeditating and thinking about the strengths of her husband. How does she meditate on her spouse? So the daughters respond to her charge. What is your beloved more than any beloved? She, they're going to, yes, that's a good idea. Go back, re-engage your, your spouse. Oh, fairest among women, what is your beloved more than any beloved that you charge us? Yes, re-engage in your marriage. Yeah. Men do dumb things. Wives do dumb things. But let's use grace and let's re-engage with one another. And it's just so helpful. We'll see the daughter several times pushing her to re-engage in her marriage. Are you surrounding yourself with people that when there's conflict in any relationship, they push you toward reconciliation? Or are you like the classic example, hey, I'm thinking about getting divorced. Well, who's kind of speaking into your life? A bunch of divorced people. 
Well, that might not be the wisest source of wisdom. Maybe talk to some people who've been married 40, 50 years. How are they, how did they overcome those things? That's kind of the role the daughters play here, encouraging them. She says, my beloved, oh, I'm thinking about him again. He's white and ruddy. He's chief among 10,000. His head, oh, when I think of his head, it's like the finest gold. The locks are wavy. They're black like raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk, fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices and scented herbs. So how are you picturing this guy? So last week, Ryan put up like this you know, old cartoon of how she was picturing him or he was picturing her. So how would you picture what she said? A head of gold, raven-like hair, cheeks that are like spices and herbs. So since Ryan's really old-fashioned, old school, I ran mine through an AI generator. And I said, what would the AI generator do in describing what Solomon looked like? And man, it is gorgeous. Women, just prepare to swoon here. Get your knees. They're going to be a little locked here. Ready? Here he is. Wow. I mean, look at that raven-like face. Look at that golden head, that beautiful raven hair. And man, who wouldn't want to kiss those spicy cheeks? That is gorgeous right there. Man, whoo, it's good stuff. But notice she is meditating on his strengths in a creative metaphor, in, in the context of poetry, but she's thinking about his strengths. She goes on, his lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold with beryl. His body is a carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. I think this is another thing to remind ourselves when we're going through conflict. That's not just my mom and dad that I'm mad at. It's not just my son I'm mad at. It's not just my spouse I'm mad at. Let's not forget we're supposed to be friends. Sometimes in the midst of conflict and differences, we forget we're supposed to be friends. And as Christians, we're called to befriend everybody. We befriend tax collectors. Jesus befriended everybody. People who didn't like, people who didn't mean things, people who were self-righteous. What does it look like for us to be friend to others the way Jesus was a friend to us? And to bring that perspective into our marriage. And so the daughters of Jerusalem say, well, where has your beloved gone? O fairest among women, where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? Let's help the two of you get back together. Let's bring the two of you back together. And so we see other people, the voice of truth, beginning to help the two of them move toward one another. And they do. And ultimately, this book is not about how if you push the right buttons and say the right things, that magically emotional intimacy always leads to physical intimacy. It's about holistically looking at your relationships. But in this case, as the poetry goes, They've got reconnected, they've worked through the conflict, and their love for one another expresses itself, not only emotionally, but physically, after so. So she uses her body and the garden metaphor again to describe her body, so they're making love tonight. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the bed of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies, which all seem to be just metaphors for them being intimate. And he, in the same way, he did the grace thing. He's come back. He's, he's, he's no longer not talking or stonewalling. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tizra. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they've overcome me. And now instead of being quiet and giving the quiet treatment, he's beginning to speak words of affirmation to her. Both of them, in some way, were able to wake up. 
to the ways in which they were meditating on their spouse. I can't believe after how hard I worked, she wasn't interested. I can't believe he'd come to the door when I'm already asleep. They began to meditate on the positives and the strengths and the friendship and the relationship. I would just encourage you, it's not easy to do. I had a good friend of mine who I was attending Horizon you know, a decade or so ago, and as we met, he was not a follower of God or Jesus at all. He, he was constantly debating me on these subjects uh, as a neighbor. And as we chatted a little bit, he began to share that he was going through a marriage crisis. And so he started coming to our church services because he heard that uh, I was the speaker. And he honestly came to see how bad I was. And <laughs> he, he said after the first week, you know, it wasn't that bad. I just got to filter out all that Jesus talk and there's some pretty good stuff in there. My favorite line from him. It was amazing to see as he began to get close to God, get close to Jesus, some of the things his wife had been knocking on the door about, some anger issues, some parenting issues that he just wasn't able to hear. God began to reveal to him what he had not listened to his family for years. And I just got to see him grow. And as he continued to grow, unfortunately, his wife had been knocking on that door for 20 years and, and it kind of was too late for him to wake up. She kind of was done. And that was very sad and very challenging. It kind of fueled his spiritual growth, but, but uh, he actually did his interview on our, on our uh, service for us years ago back at CCD. And as I was talking to him, as he grew spiritually, he ended up getting remarried. And he says, you know what? Now that I have Christ in my life, now that I have God in my life, I, I want to try and be open to feedback, be more teachable. I want to wake up to how I think about my spouse and how I hear their concerns. I want you to wake up before it's too late. While the Holy Spirit's knocking on your door, not somebody slamming the door in your face. Say, God, speak to me. Lastly, the last thing we need to wake up to is this emotional, physical dance that often happens between two people. There's often an emotional, physical dance between two people in marriage. And again, this flips between male and female, but often one person uses emotional intimacy to create interest in physical intimacy. The other person is interested in physical intimacy, and that opens them up to want to talk and, and be more emotionally intimate. Well, we're, that's a problem, right? If you've got two people, one needs E to get to P, and one needs P to get to E, what are you going to do? This is frustrating. The question is going to be, who goes first? And this is where the gospel comes in again, because the gospel says that when we didn't go first, when we didn't pursue God, God loved us first. He first loved us. We say, God, I'm going to initiate and go first in this dynamic because you went first for me. I'm going to pursue a relationship. And if I've been too focused on bodily oneness, I want to focus more on friendship oneness and spiritual oneness. I want to have a holistic relationship. And, and they don't all lead to the other. They're all important in our relationship. And here's, you see this couple here just really beginning to speak emotional words of life into each other in a really beautiful way here. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that have come up from the washing. It's almost the exact same words from last chapter, right, that Ryan mentioned. Basically, you've got all your teeth. <laughs> Everyone bears twins. You're not missing any one of them. None of them is barren. Gosh. You know, so none of them are gone. And then he says this. It's so amazing. He says, like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Now, the pomegranate is almost always used as a sensual image in the Middle Eastern culture, typically for a woman's body. But in this case, he's got the pomegranate up here. He says, your cheeks are rosy like a pomegranate. 
But if, if you've ever eaten a pomegranate, the sweetness is on the inside. He reverses the pomegranate metaphor here to say, when I think of you, the sweetness is on the inside. I know who you are. I love who you are, the sweetness inside you. Inside your temples and your cheeks, the real you that I know, that's what I appreciate. That's what I love. And you know what? As a king, I get to see a lot of women. 60 queens and 80 concubines from other nations and virgins without number. But my dove, you're the only one for me. My perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of she who bore you. And again, he's just pouring into giving her attention and appreciation, speaking to insecurity, speaking to fears. Just a beautiful emotional connection here. The daughter saw her and called her blessed. The queens of the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? This incredible affirmation, encouragement, emotional intimacy that he's speaking here into her. And I would just say for all of us, what does it look like for you and I to do that dance? And again, stepping outside of marriage, what does it look like for all of us to wake up to the way in any conflict in any relationship we have to wake up to our part? It's interesting because in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians picks up on this idea. And Ephesians is going to say, wake up, you sleeper. Wake up. You've got the resurrection body of Christ in you, and that power affects relationships. He talks about waking up sleeper, and then he applies it to bosses and, uh, and servants. He then applies it to parents and children. He then applies it to spouses. Let me show you how he does it. It's in Ephesians. Wake up, you sleeper. Wake up to God's grace to you, God's patience to you, God's mercy to you, and then extend that to the people in your life. Here's what he says in Ephesians. Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead that Christ will give you light. Then he applies that not to like one day when you get to heaven. He applies it now. And when you get that you're awake, O sleeper, you will walk wisely in life. Walk circumspectly or, or wisely. Don't be foolish, but wise. When you realize you're alive in Christ and, and, and he's made you alive, you'll walk wiser. You'll redeem the time. You'll make the most of every opportunity. And then he goes and applies it to bosses, parents, and spouses. So husbands, love your own wives. When you wake up to what Christ has done for you, you start loving your wife just like you love your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. He who, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. You feed yourself, you breathe, you nourish and cherish your own body. Do the same thing to your spouse, just as the Lord does for the church. What does it look like for us to cultivate our relationships, to nourish our relationships, and to cherish our relationships? So I'll leave you with this. The people in your life, God's designed to have needs. So I want you to think of one area you have conflict. It doesn't have to be with your spouse. It could be the son, daughter, colleague. What are the needs they have in this situation? You can download these slides if you want. Um, they're always on the app and online. Does someone in your life need acceptance? You've been telling them how wrong they are, but they just need you to accept them during this difficult time. Do they need affection? Do you just need to maybe appreciate some employees that are kind of getting disgruntled because you haven't appreciated them a lot? You see their disgruntledness, but you haven't seen their need for appreciation. Does your son or daughter just need some attention because you've been so busy recently, you haven't given attention to see that thing they drew or go to that game where they kicked the soccer ball or scored the goal? 
Does your spouse been saying for years, knocking on the door, that she needs comfort, support, encouragement, security? What if we began to say, God, you met my needs when I wasn't worthy of it. God, help me be a conduit of what you did for me to the people in my life. Pick one person. Pick one of their needs. And ask the Holy Spirit this week to convict you, empower you, and energize you to be a conduit of his love to them. Let's pray. Father, teach us. Teach us how to love the way you've loved. Teach us, Father, to be aware of our own waywardness, but without getting defensive. And help us, Father, to pursue relationships that honor you on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.